Women faculty of color experience significant workload differences in course loads, advisement, and dealing with micro and macro aggressions. In this episode, we discuss specific steps that we can take to reduce barriers and move towards equity. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Shavella Pittman. Shavella is a professor of sociology at Dominican University, the founder of Effective and Efficient Faculty, and is the host of the Teaching in Color podcast. She has written extensively about issues of race and gender in higher education in scholarly and general interest publications and is widely sought after for workshops and consultation services related to diversity, equity, and inclusion issues in higher education. Welcome, Shavella. Thank you. Thank you. Our teas today are, are you drinking tea? I'm not. I'm drinking water and looking forward to going to grab a craft beer in an hour or so. <laughs> of course, we're recording early in New York. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I had to add in a few hours. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm drinking English breakfast today. I just finished a ginger peach black tea and now I'm drinking a blueberry green tea. Oh, Cup number three, isn't it, John? It's pretty early. It is. We had a meeting earlier where I went through two versions of ginger peach black tea. You're making me want to go get my tea. I'm in the midst of camping, but I have packed with me some hibiscus leaves to make tea and some ginger tea that I picked up in Bali. So you are encouraging me to have tea after I get off. I think that sounds like a great plan. I drink ginger tea a lot. It's really nice. So we've invited you here today to discuss the challenges faced by female faculty members from minoritized populations. College faculty members are disproportionately white and in many disciplines, disproportionately male. Can you talk a little bit about why this results in workload differences? The main issue is that our institutions, regardless of whether the composition of the student body, a lot of our institutions have made commitments to producing students that can function in a diverse society that can make a difference in the world. But the faculty that are particularly suited to do that in terms of maybe their statuses or their research or their experiences or their pedagogy happen to be faculty that are from diverse backgrounds. And so those are the folks who are doing a lot of the heavy lifting, whether it be for service in the classrooms, in their research, et cetera. So it's pretty much the commitments that our institutions are making that's requiring additional workload for those faculty. Now, obviously, other faculty can do that work, but that hasn't been the case. These faculty are the ones that are doing it and they're often hired to do it, essentially. Our institutions are saying that they can prepare well-rounded students, but they don't have well-rounded personnel and talent to do so. And the folks that they bring in are usually taking the load of that because the same way that our students haven't been prepared by diverse faculty, our faculty and staff haven't been prepared by diverse folks. So even with the greatest of intentions, the folks that we have set forth to prepare our students in this well-rounded way, they themselves are not prepared and they themselves don't have those skills and abilities. So the folks that we bring in who have those mindset, those perspectives, that expertise are overloaded because they're having to 
do that work to prepare students, but also to compensate for the fact that their peers don't have that capacity either. Does this also translate into higher advisement loads for faculty in these groups? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So when you have diverse students, odds are they're going to flock to the people who have interests similar to theirs that look more like them. So even if students aren't formally assigned to you, they make their way to you. But it's not just the diverse students. Some of the majority students, too, see, wow, this faculty member is doing research that's related to this social justice thing that I'm interested in, but none of the other faculty are doing that. So you end up advising more students formally and informally as a result because they are drawn to those folks that have a broader perspective or have experiences that are missing from the institution. So it absolutely translates into higher advisement. I just reconnected with the student, again, a white male student. So like on top of the students of color that I had, a white male student that I advised as an undergrad just found me and I had a Zoom meeting with him last week. And I gave him the perspective and the scholarly information that he was not getting from his other faculty. And he became very interested in a lot of these issues. So it's not just the diverse students, the majority students are flocking to these faculty as well. Might the same thing be true of white faculty and male faculty approaching people who might be able to provide support when difficult or challenging issues come up? And certainly we've seen a lot of difficult and challenging issues over the last few years. Oh, my goodness. Yes, absolutely. I try to tell people, like, I know that their request seems like, oh, it's just one small request, but it's a drop in the bucket. If you could imagine how many emails I get weekly asking me to do those things. I don't want to implicate my own campus, but obviously I get them on my own campus, but I also get them from organizations. I get them from people that might know me broadly, and it's a lot. But if you think about the fact that the majority of our women of color faculty are not tenured and at less junior ranks, like the service load that that puts on people, it takes away from their ability to do the research, but people really do get offended. So when your faculty colleagues are like, oh, I'm just making this one small ask, but they don't understand that you've probably gotten five or six just that week. And then because they don't have to do that work all the time and then face the resistance and the navigation that's required by that, they don't realize that not only is it a time toll, it's an energy toll and it's risky. So yeah, that's exactly what I was saying about our colleagues not having the capacity for this work, but they're coming to us to do it. And it's a lot. It's a lot. And it doesn't mean that folks don't want to be helpful, but you can't do things for other folks to the detriment of your own career or well-being. And a lot of times it's set up that way. That expectation is set up that that's what needs to be occurring. And especially for junior faculty, it's hard to say no sometimes, I would imagine. Absolutely. It's really hard to say no. Even when I was junior, I had senior mentors that helped me navigate how to say no and how to often say no that didn't sound like a no, how to say something that would make the person take the request back or take something off my plate or whatever it was to acknowledge that that was labor on top of other labor and the cost or consequence it might have for me. So I'm very grateful for the senior folks who did that for me. And I try to do that now for women faculty of color, for sure. That reminds me of one of your episodes of your podcast that focuses a lot on the classroom and actual teaching and the labor that's involved with that. 
Can you elaborate a little bit on those ideas and how the workload associated with actually being in class and teaching is something that we tend to overlook? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll forewarn anyone who listens to those is that you're going to hear me sound frustrated because people really do overlook that labor. What I hear most often is people say, oh, no one gets tenure for teaching or no one gets denied tenure because of teaching. But that's not true. It's not true at all. And what you hear me talk about in those podcast episodes and in some of my research or we read other people's research on the classrooms is that those faculty, they're navigating minefields, essentially. They're being harassed by students, by colleagues for the content. Their careers are at threat because of evaluations. They're trying to prepare for the inappropriate resistance that they're going to get in the classroom. And because they're spending so much time and energy doing that, they're not able to do the research that they need to get tenured. Whether it's just the time or the emotional labor required, it just doesn't leave space for people to get the research done. So it drives me a bit bonkers that people really overlook how this stuff plays out in the classroom because they think it's not important. But the reason they think it's not important is because they don't experience it and they don't see it and they don't understand how much of a drain it can be and really derail people's careers. But yes, I talk a lot about that on the podcast. And you also had written a paper about classroom disruptions, primarily involving white male students engaged in disruptive behavior in classrooms. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I think a lot of what I'm trying to do for the most part is give voice to the experiences of women faculty of color because they are overlooked and invalidated and it's like missing or people try to find ways to explain it away. But honestly, there isn't space for the voices of the experiences of women faculty of color. So that article that you're talking about in particular was a research project that interviewed folk and it was about their teaching broadly. So it wasn't even focused on the disruptions, but the pattern that became really clear was that all the women faculty of color, regardless of discipline, how much teaching experience they had and their rank, because sometimes people say, oh, once you're senior, you won't have to deal with it. That's not true. I'm a full professor, but guess what? I'm still Black. I'm also still a woman. And so what was found in that research was, again, across all of those differences, the women faculty of color had the same experiences with white male students in particular over and over again. They would challenge their authority in a variety of ways. They would make them feel at threat, whether getting in their personal space, some sort of physical threat or engage in behaviors that would make their careers seem like they were at threat. They would inappropriately challenge the legitimacy of their scholarship. Like they would say, this is just your opinion. It's like, no, this is expertise. This is scholarly expertise. So those were just a couple of the themes that were in that data. But those things are common and they happen on a regular basis. And that's not acknowledged. And so that's why I try to do that research and try to get it out there as much as possible because people don't realize that these are the dynamics that women faculty of color, a lot of them, not all of them, are dealing with in their classrooms. There's a lot of the and, like it's the advisement and the classroom and course load. (laughs) They all really add up. Can you talk a little bit about the course load issues? Oh my goodness, yes. You would think I just started researching this stuff. I'm still having visceral responses to it. When people tell you things anecdotally, sometimes people try to say like, oh, that's not true. When you look at the data and see who's getting the new course preps, who's being assigned the service courses, which tend to have higher loads, those tend to be our women faculty of color. Other folks are able to sort of choose, select, be assigned 
smaller courses, niche courses on their research, and that's not happening. So for the most part, women faculty of color have higher loads. And again, to give you anecdotal to see what that looks like, I was just talking with a Black woman faculty member yesterday, and she told me that a piece of paper was passed along at a meeting and her name was just next to three courses. And it happened to be three new course preps at the same time. And so people aren't watching, essentially. They're not keeping track of the assignments. They're not ensuring that there's parity. So she was completely frazzled trying to get those new courses all prepped at the same time. And I think two of them were grad level courses. So yeah, so that's what it looks like, is that when you look at the statistics nationwide of the loads for women faculty of color, they're more likely to be assigned service courses, intro courses, and new preps. And that's labor. It's much easier to teach a course you've taught before. It's much easier to teach a course that has 15 folk in it than one that has 50, 75, 150, essentially. Beginning courses can take a lot of a toll on any faculty member when you have a lot of students who might not be interested in the subject matter you have that layer of extra convincing to do on top of all of this too. Absolutely. 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 And you also have discussed some of the issues in terms of the pedagogical approaches that are used. Could you talk a little bit about some of the differences that appear there in terms of how faculty of color might teach differently in some ways than what students are used to in other classes or faculty are used to? Yeah, you're right. Students and faculty being used to. So again, when you look at the research on faculty with marginalized statuses, women faculty of color in particular, they tend to use more. And I haven't landed on like a particular label. Sometimes I say innovative practices, but they're not usually innovative. They're just non-traditional. You know what I'm saying? They don't lecture the whole time. So that group of faculty doesn't really stand in front of the classroom and lecture. They tend to do things that are more interactive. They tend to do things that are more participatory, whether it's emancipatory teaching or the pedagogy of the oppressed or whatever. I don't advocate for or against any particular type of pedagogy, but just trying to make it plain that according to the Scholarship on Teaching Literature, these are all the pedagogies that are transformative. These are the ones that are learning-centered, and they're doing that. And a lot of times, they're doing it intuitively. Sometimes they've studied about it, but we know that graduate programs don't really prepare faculty to teach. (laughs) Some of them are doing it intuitively. Some of them found their educational experiences lacking until they've read a little bit about they're doing it differently. But they're engaging in all of these effective pedagogical practices that really transform students in all these different ways and that are shown to teach them well. But they get great resistance from both students and from colleagues because they're not used to them. So they're doing the right thing. It's just different. And there's a lot of resistance to the fact that they're doing something that's different, even though they can usually demonstrate that the students have learned. We already know there's a lot of bias in course evaluations that students perform on courses. But when we have these other active approaches, the questions that are often on those evaluations don't even match either. Exactly. So it's almost like a double whammy there. It is. And I'm opening up a can of worms. But the can of worms that I'm trying to not open is essentially that there's a lot of misalignment between what our campuses say is great teaching, what's on our course evaluation forms, and what's actually in the scholarship of teaching and learning, and what's in the repertoire of what the people who are doing those evaluations actually know from any of those pieces. There's usually just a misalignment and disconnect between those pieces. There was a study at Harvard done a couple of years ago now, which found that students tend to find lecture much more effective, despite all the evidence that 
lecture is less effective than active learning techniques. So when you add in other forms of bias, that becomes fairly challenging. Anyone trying to use effective pedagogy has to make a case to students about its effectiveness. But when you add in some racial and gender bias, this problem may be a little bit worse, which may also tie into teaching evaluations, either by students or by observations from peers. My faculty development business is called Effective and Efficient Faculty because I am trying to find the easiest ways to get solutions into people's classrooms and onto people's campuses. I read all the literature so that people don't have to do all that. I communicate it back to people in a way that they can learn it really quickly, but so that they can act on it. And I tell them the actionable pieces because sometimes that becomes like a stall tactic. People are like, oh, I need to research and I need to read and we need to get this through committee and Our women faculty of color don't have time for that. So we need to get that stuff going as quickly as possible. And what you said, I mean, highlights what I was trying to say gingerly about the disconnect. All the research says that when you do something different in the classroom that students aren't used to, your evals are going to go down. But people don't take that into account when they're reviewing you for tenure and promotion. Those people don't know that research. They're not reading it. They're not applying it. It's not connected. And to me, that's what the problem is. So in terms of like, how do you address all of this? I think there are some institutional actions that people can take. And the first thing you can take is to bring the research to people. So if they're not going to go to the research, bring the research to them. So people should be trained more on what effective pedagogy looks like. A lot of the people who are evaluating our teaching are evaluating based on what they would do. And hmm, that might not be right for a range of reasons. (laughs) Might not be the right approach. It's not grounded in research. But also, we shouldn't be evaluating people on whether or not they're clones of us, what it is we would do, particularly if they're people with different statuses. And I'm always trying to tell people, everybody, based on their discipline, their pedagogy, their teaching style, what works for you might not work for me. And so there needs to be some flexibility. So that's the first thing, is that people need to be trained on what effective pedagogy is. That's step one. The other things that can be done are, this is going back to the idea of classroom disruptions. Every campus should have a classroom disruptive behavior policy. And if you don't like the word disruptive, you don't like the word policy, fine. It can be whatever language you like. I know that that sort of raises people's hackles. But there's a student code of conduct. You should be looking at it. And when it lists like, here are the things that are prohibited any place on campus, just make sure the word classroom is in there. Because sometimes people think, oh, well, that doesn't apply to the classroom. Hello, that's where the work at the university occurs. Of course it applies to the classroom, but let's make it explicit by putting it in there. Some campuses have separate policies about classrooms. That won't be a one-size-fits-all for faculty because, again, people teach in different ways. What's appropriate in one classroom might be a not for another. You can yell out, answers in my class, another faculty member might want you to raise their hand. But there's a way in which you can write a policy that makes it plain that classroom management is going to occur in the classroom and that there are going to be behaviors that will be disruptive to that classroom and that those are not allowed and that here are the consequences for that. And while that might make people uncomfortable, those policies already exist on our campuses for dormitories, for public speaking events, for the dining halls, et cetera. And so it's actually already normative to let students know that in order for us to sort of work and function as a community, here are the guidelines by which we should operate. And here's what happens when you don't abide by those guidelines. So the classrooms need to be looped into that. Student ratings. Now that's a can of worms. People will defend those things to the day that they die. I don't get into that squirmish. That's not the squirmish that I get into. The squirmish that I'm more interested in is I want people to read more about what the folks that make those things themselves say about their use in personnel reviews. 
They're not saying they're supposed to be using personnel reviews. The history of those things are to give people feedback. So when you're doing that new, innovative, fun thing, they're meant to be a way for you to get feedback from that. They're not meant to be evaluative. And some of the items that people use, like the overall item that they actually say, like, don't use that item at all. And people are like, that's the best item to use. So we need people to learn more about what student ratings say and don't say about effective teaching. And we need people to be trained, taught, learned, well-versed on what to do with the data from them. So if we're going to use them in reviews, what is the best practice methodologically and statistically for how we use that data? So we need people to know that. And I think just broadly, we need people to understand how to evaluate teaching for tenure and promotion. And they don't. People might be methodologists in their discipline and they know how to do that perfectly. None of that seems to translate to how we evaluate teaching on our campus. And again, none of these things are things that should take two years of committee work and five years of faculty governance meetings. I definitely teach people really direct, simple things that they can do and shifts that they can make to get this into play. But I think those are the main magic wands. Teach people about effective pedagogy, learn about student evaluations, learn how to use the data soundly, learn how to evaluate teaching, and make sure that you reward effective pedagogy. So don't just learn about it. Don't punish it. Reward it. Novel idea. And to make sure that faculty have resources to get support off campus. Because a lot of folks get relegated to the teaching center as though something's wrong with them. Like, oh, go to the principal's office. You got bad evals. Go get fixed. We want to make sure people have resources to go other places where there maybe aren't eyes. I know that teaching centers stay out of the evaluative process, but they're overwhelmed. They're overworked. People have put so much stuff on their plate and may not actually know some of this research with intersections with women faculty of color. They may not have as much experience supporting women faculty of color. So you need to make sure that you give faculty resources to get the support they need off campus. So lots of magic wands. So speaking of magic wands, I know you have some about workload related to advisement and course loads. Can you talk a little bit about those? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And these are simple. So this is actually a really good example of what I mean when I say, oh, even though I said a magic wand that sounds like it takes forever, that it's really easy to resolve. So for teaching loads, this is the magic. Track them. Make an actual chart where you track people's loads and how many courses are service loads. What are the numbers of the loads? How many are their new preps? And you just want to keep track and make sure that there's some equity, some equitable distribution across that, or maybe not even equitable. Because if you know you're going to give a woman of faculty of color a whole bunch of service stuff, then that means that they have a lighter load. But you need to track the load and you need to be more mindful about the teaching assignments moving forward. So just track them. People don't do that at all. I think sometimes these things seem so obvious, but we need to say them out loud. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Simple Excel sheet. Anyone can do that. They could do that today if they wanted to. And while this wouldn't eliminate bias in evaluations, might it be worth having institutions revise their teaching evaluations or any rubrics they use for peer evaluations to focus a little bit more on evidence-based teaching methods in at least a general format to nudge all faculty to move into the use of better teaching techniques to reduce some of the disparities that are being observed there? Absolutely. And honestly, that's what I teach people to do. And when you do that, obviously bias is still going to exist for humans, but it gives you more evidence instead of just the bias, essentially. 
So one of the things I teach people to do is this gets back to what you were saying, Rebecca, that someone might be using a different pedagogy, but that's not represented on the evaluation form in any way, shape or form. So one of the things I teach folks how to do is evaluate the faculty member on what they were trying to do. That's usually not represented anywhere in the evaluative process. So what were they actually trying to do? How were they trying to get there? And what's the evidence that that's what they did? If you just start there from how you evaluate teaching and learning, because it's an evidence-based approach, that goes a long way. So even if students are having resistance in some other way or form on evaluations, if you have some data that, say, I wanted to make sure that students knew how to apply a theory to something real world, and I say, this is the strategy I use to teach students how to do it, and I write about that, I explain it, and then I produce data that shows the students learned how to do that, that's evidence versus the student rating of them having resistance to the strategy I use to teach them or their resistance to the topic. It's a much better process. So yes, an evidence-based process is way better than what most of our campuses are doing now, which is just looking at the evals and looking at the scores and saying, this person is a great teacher, this person isn't a great teacher, but that's not what the evaluations are saying at all. Their students' reactions to various things about faculty member, their course content, their personality, their pedagogy, their statuses. Students love lecture, but when you do objective measures of what they learned, they haven't learned. Student reactions are important information, but they're not always important information about whether or not effective teaching occurred. Definitely. Learning's hard. Yes! I imagine that all of these things tend to show up in our student evaluations because it's just not always a comfortable experience. And so that tends to be reflected rather than whether or not they learned something. Exactly. And the research supports that. In addition to in-class challenges, women faculty of color are likely to face other microaggressions from colleagues. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I'll cling pretty closely to the teaching ones because I think they're the ones that are overlooked. People talk about a lot of the other things that go on. Essentially, what happens is that the same way that students can be resistant, institutions want us to come in and provide these broad perspectives and these new ways of knowing and doing, but the colleagues are as resistant as the students are. So colleagues are like, well, why are you teaching that? You are teaching this. That means that you're not teaching that. And that's the canon. Like you have to teach so-and-so. Or if it's like a survey course and the person's like, well, guess what? Other people were around and involved in the development of this. And I'm making a point to include those voices that were omitted. Colleagues resist that. It challenges their own preparation and expertise and et cetera. So I hear that all the time, that people are like, they're being told to not teach something. They're being told to only lecture. So their advice for students resisting the teaching that they do that's transformative is say, well, just lecture. If you know students don't like that, just lecture. So they're effectively telling them to engage in the teaching practices that are popular versus the ones that are effective. And so on a regular basis, I'm hearing that a woman faculty of color is being told Don't teach this particular topic. It's not actually scholarship. Don't teach in this particular way. Don't make students call you by your title. Like, oh, let them call you by your first name. Just the level of, I don't know, I wanted to say control, but that's what it is. They're trying to control their content, their pedagogy, their interactions with students from their lens, not from the lens of that person with different statuses. And again, it's not benign. This isn't just interpersonal stuff. These are going to be the folks that are reviewing them. These are going to be the folks that are voting on their tenure. These are going to be the folks that don't understand that they haven't been able to complete their book or their article because they've been told you have to get your course evaluations up. Well, how the heck do you do that? Where's the magic wand for that? That's the magic wand I want to find. 
And the ones I know of are like the trickery ones, like give them pizza, give everyone A's. I'm not suggesting that at all, but these are the things that they're being suggested to do to get their evals up. And faculty can be pretty aggressive and territorial about what's taught in a class and how it's taught. And that varies by disciplines. Like I can think of a couple of areas of disciplines that people are very territorial because I think for them, it waters it down or it makes their stuff not seem as valid. So colleagues have been very aggressive about what women faculty of color teach and how they teach it. In their reviews, not just interpersonally, but in their reviews. And these people end up not tenured as a result. They get pushed out. And then we wonder why there's no faculty of color. Not only that, we wonder why there aren't any. And then if you say, I think teaching's a problem, they're like, oh no, that's not it. It's one of many problems, obviously, but it has to be on the list. And it usually isn't on the list at all. Just thinking of, again, of all these things that happen with colleagues around these topics. And in the water cooler talk, like faculty member goes back and tells a majority member, faculty member, so-and-so's teaching XYZ in their class, or I don't like so-and-so, they're mean, or this person doesn't seem approachable. The water cooler talk that gets rolled into some of the antagonistic colleagues that women faculty of color have because students have come back and said, well, they're unapproachable. It's like, they're not unapproachable. You're just not used to dealing with Black women, or you're not used to dealing with Asian American women, or your lack of experience might be causing some discomfort that may make you misperceive that interaction, but that's making its way back to colleagues and colleagues are passing judgment and that's working its way into interactions versus them sort of pausing and saying something could be going on. But again, our colleagues aren't used to having interactions with these statuses either. So they're navigating at the same time the students are. Which makes it very hard to mentor because there's many generations that need to undo learned behavior and learned biases and to start working on institutional and cultural change. But it takes a long time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Doesn't have to take a long time. You can make some small shifts in how you evaluate teaching and how you evaluate teaching, what you do with student ratings. There are very small things that you can do that would make a huge difference. Like you said, just looking at the dang on teaching assignments actually taking into account what the faculty member was trying to do when you evaluate them. People don't do that. They'll tell you, oh, that's biased. It's like teaching to the test. Excuse me? How do you know if my teaching was effective if you're not even looking at what I was trying to do? If you're only looking at the student ratings, that doesn't make any sense, but it's what a lot of people do. And they stick to it, right? And that's what we've always done. That's how we evaluated so-and-so, so it's not fair to change now. Well, those ways of being stuck are the things that maintain inequality, essentially. You've talked about some ways in which institutions can make changes. Are there any other things that institutions can do or individual faculty and departments can do to help reduce some of these challenges? Well, I'll definitely revert back to all the magic wands I said earlier. And I will get like a broken record because I want people to start those places. And like Rebecca said, they seem so easy. But a lot of people don't state them out loud. Not only do people not state them out loud, but when they hear that they sound easy, they don't do them either. They're like, oh, that won't make a difference. I'm like, wait a minute. So I will say the same things over and over again, encourage people to do them. So same things. So what I would love for people to do, administrators or institutions alike, pull open your student code of conduct and see if there's anything in there explicitly about classroom behavior. I want people to do that immediately. I would like people to look at the definition on their campus for what's effective teaching and then look at their student rating form and see, is there alignment? Now, that doesn't mean revise the heck out of the student rating form to increase alignment because the student rating form isn't the place for all of those evaluative things to occur. There has to be some peer evaluation involved in that. But at least looking will shake up 
the way people feel that the student rating form is like the beginning and the end of the evaluation for faculty. Look at your peer observation process. Is that aligned with the institution's definition of effective teaching? Do the ratings form or the observation form take into account what the faculty member's trying to do? See, these are all very simple things that institutions can do. Like, how do we incorporate what the faculty member was trying to do that day into what we're observing, into what we think the data is telling us? So these are very small shifts. And then start putting some money aside. Our women faculty of color have been beat up this past 14, 15, 16 months. Like the shouldering of the emotional labor of the pandemic, of folks' heightened awareness for racial injustice, it's been a lot of us, you know, doing a lot of that labor. And so people need to put their money where their mouths are. I've had a couple of kind of painful moments of women faculty of color saying that they're suffering on their campus. They make their way to me and an institution has said, no, we have a teaching center. And I'm like, uh, the teaching center isn't equipped to do that for a range of reasons. They're overloaded. All the teaching and learning people are like pandemic much. Like, have you not noticed our hands are full People really need to free up funds to help people get the support that they need for these things. So those are the things I would suggest people do as individuals. Make money available for women faculty of color. Look at their classroom disruptive policy. Look at their student evaluations, their peer observation form. Learn about the dangon research on student rating. Learn about how to evaluate teaching. And the real call to action, don't take two years or one year of committee to do it. Make a change that you're going to enact in fall. And if you need to figure out how to do that, and that seems impossible, then make your way to me and I'll help you figure it out. I love that your approach is so actionable. I think a lot of times we spend our time in some conceptual space, spinning our wheels, not doing anything, but you've given us many very specific, very actionable items. So I hope our listeners will take your lead and just take those steps. I hope so, because I'm watching the women faculty of color that get weeded out through negative tenure promotion reviews or renewal reviews, if they're like adjunct or something like that, who leave the institution. So while people are spinning their wheel, people are suffering. So it seems like an intellectual exercise to some people, but it's like, hello, people's livelihood and health are on the line. So I don't have the luxury of all that committee work. I'm trying to support folks now because they needed the support yesterday, but I'm trying to help them now. So we always wrap up by asking, what's next? Seems really, really, really loaded. Well, I'm writing a book, actually. I'm writing a book. And again, that same frustration, anger, and hope that you hear in my podcast is pretty much what the book is about. I've been doing this for over 20 years. And I think I thought that at some point, institutions were going to catch up, particularly as more research has come out, even when it's not about race or gender at all. When research has come out that says, these are the best pedagogies, here's the best way to do this, that, and the other, I thought, great, people are going to start making hard left turns and do something different. Or the more and more research that comes out on women faculty of color's experiences around teaching, I thought, oh, great, people are going to make a turn. They're not. And so I'm writing a book. And the book is explicitly for women faculty of color to help them navigate the challenges that they're most likely to face and to do it using the scholarship of teaching and learning. And it's very much so about helping them be their most authentic selves in the classroom and finding joy, but protecting themselves from the review process. So it's all about retaining women faculty of color but allowing them to also continue to teach authentically and joyfully. And I'm frustrated that I even have to write the book, but I'm hopeful because I know that I can get it into people's hands and they can feel much more empowered until their institutions catch up, essentially. 
So that's what's next. Unfortunate that it's a needed resource. Yes. I'm glad that we have someone who can write it. Yes. Thank you. I'm excited about it. And much of what you're advocating is just doing better at our jobs and teaching more effectively, which is something I hope we'll all take seriously in moving forward. But progress has been slow, as you've noted. Yes, absolutely. And we should note that if anyone would like to learn more about these topics, your Teaching in Color podcast is available on all podcast platforms and is one that people should listen to. Yes, it's interesting. I hope that people will find it interesting. And I wanted to say that the podcast and the book that I'm writing, even though it's directly for women faculty of color, I do want allies to listen, participate, and buy. Because the more that they know, the more they can make some of these things normative and get some of these changes moving. So I'm very intentionally writing to women faculty of color because they're usually ignored and silenced, but there's a lot there for allies to learn. So whether they're allies in the teaching and learning space or ally administrators or ally faculty, there's a lot for them to learn from the podcast and from the book to help them support these folks to be successful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for all the work that you do. Thanks so much for having me and for encouraging me to go enjoy that tea that I have. There's always time for tea. Yes. And we hope we'll be talking to you again in the future. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on tforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.